I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am really, really excited. We are going down the ancient history route and I've asked the really, really awesome Professor Michael Scott to come and join us who is a professor of classics at Warwick University you all have seen him on tv because trust me you would all know um he is an award-winning author historian he has published some amazing books like his most recent works uh, the ancient worlds and of course delphi and i just found out that he's also an honorary citizen of delphi i mean like how cool is that so welcome welcome on our podcast hi thanks for having me but here, we're actually here to talk about delphi so first of all what is Delphi when was it built and where is it because our friend Helen funnily enough thought it was somewhere in Italy well uh let's take those in reverse so where is it uh particularly for Helen um it is not in Italy we are in Greece uh we are in the center of Greece uh, and we are high up in the Parnassian mountain ranges which is one of the highest mountain ranges in Greece in fact it's so high that even today there is a ski resort on the top of the Parnassian mountains that you can go and ski at and a very nice ski resort it is too um but about 600 meters above sea level hidden in the clefts of the Parnassian mountains in central Greece is this little place called Delphi. Uh, and where it is is a really important question, not just for, for trying to get there now for poor old Helen, who's got herself in the wrong country, um, <laughs> but actually the ancients were really thought this was an important question too. And they didn't just have a simple answer saying, you know, go to Athens, go a couple of hours north, turn left, go up the mountain, there you go. They felt that Delphi was actually at the centre of the world. And they told a story that Zeus, the king of the ancient Greek gods, had let loose two eagles from opposite ends of the earth. And where they met was the center of the earth, the center of the world, and that place was Delphi. Um, so Delphi held a sort of a real importance uh, from, from quite, quite early on in its history as something very, very special, something at the center of, of, of mankind. And it was known often as the omphalos, which translates from the Greek as sort of the center, the navel, right? Uh, when we did our program about Delphi for the BBC back in 2010, it actually got called Delphi belly button of the ancient world, partly because that's the direct translation of the Greek word omphalos and partly because the BBC wanted to have a sort of sexy word in the subtitle that would get people to tune in uh, for a program about ancient history. Wow. Uh, when was it built? Uh, again, that is a more complicated question um, than one might imagine in that we, 
archaeology is constantly changing this story, right? So every time there's a new dig season or something new is found, it perhaps pushes our story, our understanding of the site a little bit back, further back into the past. And so it's clear that there was habitation at this place of Delphi um, going very, very, very long back into uh, the past. But its emergence as um, what we understand Delphi to be in its heyday, which is a religious sanctuary to the god Apollo, that seems to have happened in around about the 8th century BC. So somewhere between 700 and 800 BCE. So that is sort of, uh, what are we talking, 700 years, 2000, 2,700 years ago, something like that. Um, and it's at this point that Delphi, as we know, it comes into focus. And at its heart, it is a religious sanctuary dedicated to the god Apollo. Uh, and surrounding that, a small community of Delphians who were living in a sort of little mini city around the sanctuary, uh, working for the sanctuary and maintaining it. Wow. I mean, why did people actually go to Delphi? Ah, so why would you bother to uh, go to central Greece, clamber 600 metres above sea level? Uh, certainly not kind of my idea of a sort of relaxed uh, Sunday trip out. Um, people went to Delphi for a very specific reason, because this wasn't just a sanctuary, a religious sanctuary where you could go and worship a god, right? There were tons of sanctuaries to Apollo all over the Greek world. You wouldn't have to walk more than probably 20 metres down your local road of your own local community before you came up to a sanctuary of Apollo. But the Delphian sanctuary of Apollo was special because in it sat an oracle and this oracle was a priestess a woman called the Pythian priestess uh, and she could be consulted on issues that you wanted to have the insight of the gods about and that's what an oracle was it was a chance to go to a religious sanctuary to ask in Delphi's case a Pythian priestess uh, what the gods thought about your particular plans or ideas uh, and what the gods had in store. And that was really important because in the ancient Greek idea of how the world worked, the gods basically controlled everything. And gods were not like any of the kind of modern day gods who were all kind of quite benign figures. Uh, actually, the ancient Greek gods were, could be vicious and they could be actively for you or they could be actively against you. And if they were actively against you, there was absolutely no point you trying to achieve whatever you had in mind that you wanted to achieve because it just wasn't going to happen. So knowing what the gods thought about your plans, knowing what the gods had in store for you uh, was really, really, really important. And so... Uh, Delphi, with its oracle, uh, or its Pythian priestess, was seen as pretty much the premier oracular site that you could go to in the ancient Greek world that gave you the best insight um, into what um, the gods had in store. It wasn't the only reason to go to Delphi. At the same time, Delphi was also a place like Olympia that held athletic games and musical competitions. So actually in the ancient world, the games, the athletic games at Delphi were thought of are on par with the Olympics, the ancient games at Olympia. Um, although we only tend to rem remember the Olympics at Olympia today. Uh, so people would go there for the athletic competitions. They would go there to consult the Oracle. And increasingly, they would go there as a chance to meet up with people coming from all different four corners of the world. Um, and even in its later stages, uh, like as a, as a site of tourism, we even know that there were sort of guided tours around Delphi set up by kind of tourist guides, just as there are today if you visit the site. Um, and they, we even found sort of little markings on certain monuments and buildings around the sanctuary, which we think were a kind of um, highlights to it. So, you know, if you've only got half a day at Delphi before you've got to carry on, uh, here are the, the top 10 things you need to see in this place before you leave. 
I mean, we, we are going to talk about the Oracle because I know everybody's perked up going, oh my God, the Oracle, we need to know more. We're going to talk about that later. But as you said, you know, people were meeting there. So this question kind of works really well. So was Delphi Panhellenic? And first of all, can you define Panhellenism for our listeners who may not know exactly what it means? You know, I feel like I've had that question before somewhere. Um, kind of, oh no, who was it? It was a really annoying young student <laughs> in the audience. What was her name? Oh, uh, Linda yeah. with an eye. Yeah. yeah, Linda with an eye. There we go. Um, so Panhellenism is actually a really topic close to my heart. And Linda knows this because I, I did my PhD on this very idea of Panhellenism, particularly at Delphi, and then wrote a book about it. What Panhellenism means uh, simply is Pan is the ancient Greek word for all and Hellenism, Hellenic is the ancient Greek word for the Greeks. Right. So it literally means all the Greeks. Um, this is an important idea because actually we talk about Greece. But in the ancient Greek world, Greece was never really one country. It was made up of a tapestry kind of patchwork of over a thousand different what we call city-states or polis in the ancient Greek, uh, who all did things differently, all did things their own way, and they acted like little independent units. Um, and frankly, they spent most of their time actually on each other's throats, uh, fighting one another at war, etc. And there were very, very few times in Greeks, in Greece's history, ancient history, when all of those kind of Greek city-states came together and had any kind of larger communal identity. And that's that larger communal identity, that moment when all the Greeks come together, that we call a kind of pan-Hellenic uh, identity. And there were very few times that this happened. Uh, normally, it happened when like a large invading force came in from the outside and threatened all the Greeks and sort of forced them all to act together to save themselves. So like when the Persians invaded, for instance, in the early 5th century BCE, and that led to the Battle of Thermopylae that's immortalized in the film 300 with Gerard Butler and his little leather nappy. And <laughs> kind of then the Battle of Salamis, which we're actually celebrating the 2500th anniversary of this year. Um, so there were moments like that. But there could also be places uh, where all the Greeks felt like they all came together and all made use of. And part of the argument has been that Delphi was one of those places, that it didn't belong to any one city-state. Sure, there was a tiny community of Delphians around the city, but around the sanctuary, but they didn't really sort of count as one of the big players they weren't athens they weren't sparta something like that um and actually this was a sanctuary that could be visited by anyone uh, and just like uh, pretty much anyone came to the olympic games to compete in the olympic games if they were greek just so at delphi pretty much anyone could come to consult the oracle um so that's why we kind of we talk about delphi as potentially being pan-hellenic uh, i have a few issues and problems with the term not least because i think one of the favorite things that greeks did when they came to Delphi was to ask the oracle about whether they should go to war against another Greek city-state. Doesn't sound particularly Panhellenic. Uh, and equally, when they did go to war against another Greek city-state, they often then put up a building or a votive or a statue or something in the sanctuary to celebrate their victory over their fellow Greek city-state. So whenever you went to Delphi and walked around the sanctuary and did your kind of tourist uh, kind of guided tour, you basically saw a whole bunch of monuments to of celebrating when Greeks were beating up other Greeks. So if you were from Rome, you couldn't really go to the Oracle, could you? I mean, that's a really stupid question that I've just decided to throw in randomly. No, you could. And in fact, we do know that Romans did. In fact, people like uh, the famous uh, and very arrogant orator Cicero 
uh, really? we know kind of went to consult the Oracle of Delphi. But its fame was that big that it wasn't just Greeks coming to the Oracle. Uh, Rome in their early days came to the Oracle at Delphi. Even Roman emperors came to the Oracle at Delphi. The Roman emperor Nero uh, was said to have consulted the Oracle at Delphi, not really liking the response that he got. Um, but equally, we have uh, examples of people coming up from Egypt. We have lots of kings coming from Asia Minor, which is you know, modern-day Turkey, coming to consult the Oracle. So its reach was very far and very wide. That's incredible. I didn't, I'd, I've always thought that it was just all about the Greek speaking people and there weren't Romans or Egyptians or even Syrians or anybody apart from, you know, that small group. So that's really interesting to know. Thank you for that. So you have mentioned obviously a bit about what Delphi looked like, um, mm. that it was, it's a sanctuary, but what other buildings can you find there? Is it just the, the Temple of Apollo and a sanctuary? No, it's a it's a quite a busy place. So imagine you, you've got our, our sanctuary of Apollo at the heart of it, but that's not the only sanctuary there. So there's also a sanctuary dedicated to Athena, and there's lots of other uh, another of the goddesses of ancient Greece, and there's lots of other little mini sanctuaries dedicated to a whole host of different uh, divinities uh, scattered around as well. Surrounding and kind of built in between all those sanctuaries are the the civic community of Delphians. Uh, so there's probably around a thousand male adult citizens of Delphi plus wives, children, slaves. So not a very big community at all. But then also in terms of buildings, crucially, you need stuff for all those athletic and musical competitions that are going on. So Delphi also has a big running uh, track, race stadium, uh, just like there is at Olympia. And imagine building that 600 meters above sea level uh, into the, the cleft of a sheer mountainside. So it's a massive engineering project to have created that much of level ground to have a big running track. Uh, there was also a gymnasium. One of the earliest built gymnasiums in the whole of ancient Greece was at Delphi, built in the 4th century BCE that had an indoor and an outdoor running arena. Uh, it had a sort of weights area, had a pool where you could sort of relax and cool off afterwards. Um, then there was also further down in the uh, sort of more towards ground level, so 600 metres lower down, more towards sea level, they had a horse racing chariot track as well that was built and set out because horse racing and chariot racing was an integral part of the games and as part of the sanctuary uh, up again 600 meters above sea level not far from where they built the running racetrack they also had a big theater um, that could seat a whole bunch of people when they came to hear all the musical competitions so this was a this was a big place with huge amounts of physical investment in terms of the amount of building that went on there to turn it into a place that you know, could handle probably one of the largest conglomerations of Greeks that ever really came together in the ancient Greek world, uh, particularly for the games and the musical competitions, something between 40 and 50,000 people. Wow, that's incredible. There is the Scythian treasury, if I'm right. Can you mm -hmm. tell us more about it? Because it is, it is an incredible, it's a remarkable building. And what was its purpose? Yeah, so when you walked into the Sanctuary of Apollo, uh, there would be a temple, obviously, a temple to Apollo, and it was inside of the temple that the Pythian priestess sat. And we'll talk more, I think, about, about going to consult her in a minute. But actually, the rest of the sanctuary was jam-packed with stuff. Uh, and it was stuff of all different kinds. And some of the most amazing stuff were sort of mini, mini temple buildings, if you like, that we have come to call treasuries. 
because of the Greek word that was used to describe them by later visitors, which is Thessauros. Uh, and these treasuries were set up by different, not individuals normally, because it's too expensive for an individual to set up, uh, but city-states. So actual entire communities would go and erect this building within the sanctuary of Apollo, could be to offer thanks to the god for an oracular consultation, could be to thank the god for victory in battle, or just sometimes to show off about how great the city-state was. And in the last quarter of the 6th century BCE, so around 525 BCE, which is fairly early on in, in Delphi's history, and it's certainly before any of the kind of major players like Athens, for instance, would start building big buildings in the sanctuary we get this really curious uh, Sifnian treasury. And you'd be well excused for never having heard of the Sifnians from the island of Sifnos, unless you're a particular fan of going on holiday to the Greek islands, um, because the Sifnians did absolutely nothing in the entirety of Greek history of any import uh, whatsoever. They were a tiny island. How could they then afford, in the last quarter of the 6th century BCE, to put up at Delphi one of the most stonkingly amazingly expensive and ornate treasuries that the world at that time had ever seen? And we're told by the ancient Greek writer Herodotus that it was because they had discovered silver mines on their island. Basically, they were a nouveau riche group of people who had got rich quick overnight, having discovered their silver mines, and they had the cash to splash around. And they did so by building this, this beautiful building, um, this treasury house, which was decorated with tons and tons of exquisitely carved sculpture, which very fortunately has survived through to today. So you can go and see it in all its glory in the museum at Delphi if you visit today. Um, the moral of the story, though, is they got a bit, bit big for their boots, a um, bit arrogant. And as we all know from the ancient Greeks, sort of what comes uh, after your pride and arrogance, after your hubris, you get a fall, you get nemesis, you get the revenge of the gods. And supposedly, according to our ancient Greek writer Herodotus, uh, the silver mines of the Siphnians were then flooded by a freak natural disaster um, and the Siphnians lost all their wealth uh, and they sank back into historical obscurity but their building their Siphnian treasury remains standing at Delphi um, and still stands in part to this day. You, you, um, you actually did a, a talk about this that I, uh, I listened to a while ago and you actually talked in more detail. Um, I think you can get it on YouTube if I'm not mistaken so if anybody wants to know more about it I mean um, uh, Michael goes into incredible detail um, about the treasury and how beautiful and things about the sculptures and things like that so I would really recommend you listen to that um, on YouTube it's all about the Delphi and things like and the Delphi Delphi sorry uh, <laughs> getting my grammar completely wrong there but you said uh, that there are things like um, dedications and you know these buildings are being built so let's talk a little bit about votives first of all can you explain to our listeners what a votive is yeah, sure. And, and just to follow up on you saying, yeah, do um, all the lectures that I've done that, that were publicly recorded, they're all collected together on my YouTube channel. So if you just go to YouTube and search for Prof. Michael Scott YouTube channel, then you'll be able to find loads there to have a look at and, and certainly some more about Delphi if you're interested. Um, a votive is anything that is given by an individual or a city state or any kind of community to a god as an object of, of devotion to the God. So you consign over, you give something 
place it within the sanctuary and it becomes the property of the gods. So you, you give it up effectively and you do it as a sign of your respect, honor and devotion to the God. And, and also a little bit, frankly, to bribe them. It's very much a kind of situation of kind of, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Um, the Greeks liked bribing their gods to try and get them on side. So what um, kind of voters did you find? Sorry to interrupt you. What, what yeah, kind of so voters? it could be it could be anything, it, it, depending on what you could afford. You know, there weren't set patterns so much as you gave something that had meaning or worth to you, and the gods would recognise that that was a worthwhile offering. So if you were very poor and couldn't afford much, it could be your hairpin or your brooch, um, something that mattered and was personal to you, all the way up to... Uh, like the Siphonians built this stonking great big treasury, which was in, in a form of votive to to the god of in honor of the god. Uh, it could be a statue or a statue group. Uh, it could be made in marble. It could be made in bronze. It could be made in silver. It could be a finely decorated jug. It could be tons of uh, pieces of gold. Uh, we hear that an Egyptian courtesan uh, called Rhodopis uh, dedicated a tenth of her earnings from prostitution in the form of iron spits and dumped them all in the sanctuary. Um, so really it could be anything. Uh, and the sanctuary as a result, because these things, once they were dedicated in the sanctuary, became the property of the god for all time, was absolutely bursting with stuff and we know that from time to time the sanctuary in order to just actually keep the aisles clear so that people could still move around the place had to go through periodical kind of clearings up uh, and the only thing they could really do with stuff was because it was the property of the god and it couldn't be removed from the sanctuary was to bury it in the ground of the sanctuary which is an archaeologist's dream uh, because of course it then remains there until we go along and dig it all up again didn't go very well for the Scythians, though, did it? Well, they they dedicated this beautiful, amazing building, and their minds get flooded. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the, that's the story that we're told. Uh, I mean, the Scythian treasury stays there and stays looking at a very, very beautiful building. But there's a salutary lesson in that um, there is a there is a uh, an inscription, a writing in stone on the front of the Scythian treasury that says Scythians, right? So they put that there when they first set it up so that everyone would know that the Scythians dedicated this. And they even imported marble from their own island, Scythian marble to, to use in the building so that you could even see that the building was made of Scythnos. Uh, but that's not the only inscription on the building. There are, in fact, hundreds and hundreds of inscriptions inscribed, written onto the stone of the building, and not a single other one of them is by a Siphonian. They're all by other people. So it's pretty clear that very quickly after this building was dedicated, it became sort of known as a place where anyone coming from anywhere who wanted to inscribe a message uh, permanently within the sanctuary which is a kind of a form another form of votive really if you couldn't offer a thing you could leave a message of devotion uh, to the god um, and and the Siphonian treasury was pretty much a, a free-for-all wall where anyone could write from anywhere could write anything. Can you tell us the story behind the Delphi charioteer and who was he? Yeah, so this relates to all those athletical and musical competitions that were happening at Delphi every four years, just like they were happening at Olympia. And particularly, it relates to the chariot racing competition that would have been going on in the chariot racing track, which would have been down below at, at sea level. Now, chariot racing was an integral part of all ath ancient athletic competitions. Uh, it was a bit of a weird one, though, because uh, although there would be a chariot driver, 
who would be standing on his kind of chariot, kind of whipping the the four horses as they careered round the uh, the chariot racing track. He wasn't actually the guy who was considered to have won if his horses uh, crossed the finish line first, because the guy who was considered to have won was the chap who owned the horses. So it was the horse race owner who won the race, not the chariot driver who won the race. And around about the sort of uh, 470s BCE, so the kind of early 5th century BCE, uh, we hear that the chariot race was won by a ruler of a Greek city-state that wasn't in Greece at all. It was actually in Sicily. Uh, now, Sicily and the southern part of Italy, uh, which might be where Helen's getting a bit confused, yeah. was actually part of the wider ancient Greek world because the Greeks had sent out colonies to uh, southern Italy, Sicily, even as far as Marseille, in fact. Modern-day Marseille is an ancient Greek colony. Also to the uh, coast of North Africa in modern-day Libya, Egypt, um, and even as far northeast as the Black Sea, for instance. So all of these little communities dotted around the wider Mediterranean world were part of the sort of greater Greek world, and so they had the right to come to Delphi and ask questions, but also to compete in the Delphian Games. And this tyrant ruler of this city-state in Sicily Greek city-state. It's called Gala. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He won the chariot race and he decided to have a very, very nice statue erected to commemorate that victory. Uh, Now, this statue was an extraordinarily expensive thing to create because it was a statue of four life-size horses, a life-size chariot, and then standing on the chariot, a life-size chariot driver, all made out of bronze. Uh, And then with decoration for particular detail done in silver, gold and precious jewels. All that is surviving for us today is the statue of the chariot driver that once stood in the chariot with his four horses. And he's only survived because we know that he sort of about another 150, 60 years after his statue was set up, he got buried 
into the ground in the sanctuary uh, in one of those kind of regular clear-ups um, that, that went on. So the Delphi Charioteer stands proud today in the museum at Delphi and is testament to the kind of extraordinary artistic genius of the ancient Greeks whose craftsmen were able to create not just something which is incredibly lifelike, uh, but which has uh, incredible emotion, I think, and meaning attached to it uh, when you when you stand in front of the statue. Do you know this? I don't. This does not going down very well with me. This whole idea that it's the owner of the chariot winning. It's like saying, "Oh, sorry, Michael Schumacher, <laughs> you haven't really won." It's it's all about Ferrari. It's all about yeah, Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we balance it out now, right? Don't we? If it's horse racing, it's both the owner and the jockey that wins. If it's Formula One, it's both the team and the driver that wins. Uh, whereas, actually, in the ancient Greek world, it was all about all about the owner of the horses. Yeah, it doesn't really sit well though with me. This idea, so. Um, <laughs> so moving on, well, talking about statues anyway, let's, let's stick on this topic. So there are two statues, um, Cleobus and uh, Beton, uh, who were two famous male statues. Were they also votives? Yeah, they were. So these are dedicated earlier on in uh, Delphi's history. So we're kind of about another century and a half before the Delphi charioteer, uh, further into the past. And these are two, what we call sort of archaic uh, statues. So archaic is the sort of term for the period of history that runs up until about the beginning of the 5th century BCE. So they're older than the Delphi charioteer. And supposedly these two statues were dedicated by the Argives, who were centred around the city of Argos and relate to a myth that was told there about how Clebus and Beton were the two sons of a priestess of a local temple of Hera and the, the mum, the priestess, was desperate to get to the temple and her sort of oxen sort of broke down of pulling her cart and so her sons, Clebus and Beton, pulled, took up the yoke of the cart and pulled her all the way there herself so the poor lass didn't have to walk and when she got there she sort of said to Hera, the goddess, uh, I'd really like uh, an honour to be given to my sons because they've done this nice thing for me and Hera um, when they went to sleep that night, Clebis and Beton Hera made them both die. So that they both died at the height of their achievements and prowess, which was having helped their mum. Uh, and so they would gain, gain, as a result, immortal glory and not sit around to waste away the rest of their lives. Again, I don't think this is a story that would sit well with anyone today. Uh, but there you go. The ancient Greeks thought it was pretty awesome um, and were very envious of what had befallen Clebis and Beton. Uh, and it was a very, very famous story. And we think that the Argos put up these statues at Delphi as a result to remind everyone that these were two of Argos's famous sons. Do you know, I completely agree. I wish, I wish we had video and you could see the look on my face as if it like, I'm sorry, what? But, yeah it's yeah it's not it's not a classic choice is it but it's the it's the it is the classic ancient greek choice like uh, the ancient hero heracles hercules was given you know do you want a long and unglorious inglorious life or do you want a short and glorious one same choice that achilles was given uh, in the iliad as well um you know do you want to go out in a blaze of glory that men will be talking about forevermore or do you want to have a sort of long healthy happy but you know no one's going to remember you in the future kind of life um, and most greeks would have planned for the for, for the form that they wanted to short short and glorious you just mentioned hercules i think i really really think you need to come back on this podcast and do a whole new one where we discuss hercules because that is oh, yeah. uh, 
<laughs> well, it, could, it couldn't be better time because Disney are remaking Disney's Hercules, which, as we all know, was one of the best films of all time. Sorry, they're, they're remaking it? Yup. In a proper, like, feature-length film. Not as, a, not as an animation, but in reality. Who's going to play Hercules? That's the key question. Who's going to play Meg? Even more important. I don't know how I feel about this because the Disney version is so awesome in itself that I don't uh, know it if is. it can be outdone. It is. I agree. I agree. I agree. Can it be outdone? But I, I'm fingers, all fingers and toes crossed. Do you know what? We're going to do this. So everybody who's listening, we've promised to get Michael Scott back on to talk to us about Disney, funnily enough, and Hercules. So I promise you all that it is going to happen. But you're going to have to wait and listen to a little bit more about Delphi because I think it's really important because we should find out what your favourite votive that was found in Delphi is. Oh, my favourite is uh, right at the entrance to Delphi. You walk in and immediately on your left, there's a, stat- there's a base left there today for a statue group of 30 statues. Uh, and this was set up by the Spartans. Now, you know lots about the Spartans. The Spartans are, well, they're Spartan, right? They don't really do art and architecture. They don't really go in for that namby-pamby kind of stuff. They're sort of hard military types. Uh, and yet at the end of the 5th century BC, when they had been victorious over Athens and the great civil war that tore Greece into the Peloponnesian War, they sort of had to commemorate this great victory because that's just what you did. And by that time, what you did when you commemorated a victory was to set up a statue group at Delphi. And I've just got my kind of in my head, this image of these Spartans who don't do this kind of thing, rocking up at Delphi going, oh God, um, what do we do? What do we do? We we don't do this kind of stuff. You know, we fight, we don't build statues. And so what they did was right at the entrance to the sanctuary of Apollo at that time, before they put up their group of 30 statues, was an Athenian monument which had 10 statues on it. And they went, I know what, we'll do that, but we'll treble it. So right next door to it, they built a statue group with 30 statues on it and went, your shocks, boo, we're better than you. Job done. (laughs) Do you know, I love it. This whole idea, I'm better than you. Uh, yeah, frankly, that was very much of what Delphi was about, and which is why kind of the, the idea of them all being nicely panhellenic, matey, matey together while at Delphi feels a bit hollow. Listen, we are dying, and even I am dying to know more about the, the Oracle of Delphi, or as the Pythian Priestess, as she was also known. What do we actually know about her? Very, very, very little. Uh, is one of the great mysteries and secrets of Delphi. We know that this was a woman who was a local Delphian, who in the early days of the Oracle was a young woman, so 1718, uh, chosen to act as the Oracle and be the mouth piece of the god and that in later times when the sanctuary got really busy and really popular they had sort of multiple Pythian priestesses going because they couldn't cope with all the demand just having one uh, we sometimes very occasionally know the names of these Pythian priestesses but we hear almost nothing about them as individuals uh, they really are kind of treated in the sources as a sort of the vassal through which all the consultants got the answers of the gods um, but we almost know nothing about them themselves and yet ironically they wielded so much power within the ancient greek world because what they said uh, literally changed the course of history on numerous occasions so how often would people go and see her 
Uh, so you couldn't just pop up whenever you felt like it. There were official consultation days. Uh, so one day a month for nine months of the year. So there were only nine chances a year to be able to consult the Oracle. So people would travel from far and wide and you had to make sure you arrived on, the, you know, in advance of the day. Because just imagine how annoyed you'd be if you sort of traveled from the furthest reaches of the Mediterranean and you and you misaligned your journey times, got delayed some point, you know, the, the train was late or the boat was late leaving or what have you. And uh, you ended up getting there a day late. So people would be traveling and they'd, they'd turn up a couple of days in advance. Then they'd have to queue. There was a, there was a very formal queuing system. Um, what order you got in the queue. Uh, and if, if you'd been especially nice to Delphi, uh, you got a kind of uh, like a, a free pass to be able to skip the queue and go to the front of the queue to ask the uh, Pythian priestess your question. Um, and then uh, even on the day, you weren't sure whether the consultation would take place because the final check on the morning of the day itself was whether the god Apollo was happy to go ahead that day. And that check was done by chucking some cold water at a goat and seeing if it shivered. And if it shivered, then the god was up for it and very happy to uh, answer questions. If the goat didn't shiver, consultation day could not go ahead. So it's a bit like the Pythian priestess wakes up in the morning as nah, I really can't be bothered to do this. Let's make sure the goat doesn't shiver. And equally, the rest of the city and individuals and temple authorities, etc., were very keen for it to go ahead because otherwise they didn't get to collect all the fees from the consultants. Um, so we have an indication in the sources that they made damn sure this goat shivered by not just chucking drops of uh, cold water at it, by, by, but by emptying entire pails of icy water over it um, to make sure this poor thing did shiver. I really feel sorry for that goat right now. But, you know, he only had to, he or she only had to work one day a month for nine months of the year and the rest of the day got a, got a very nice life. So, you know, what's a, what, what's a dousing with a bit of cold water nine times a year? Exactly. So did people actually have to pay to see her? Well, you, do, you did mention that. So what, yes. how does this Yes, work? they did. Absolutely. There was a fee. That was the way that Delphi survived as a community. I mean, it didn't have any agriculture. It didn't make much of its own. It survived off the fees that came to the sanctuary through oracular consultation and also by people paying the local building merchants and, and artists and sculptors to make these votives to, to put up in the sanctuary. And we know that the, the payment uh, structure was very, very detailed, that actually different different city-states in the Greek world had different rates that they had to pay depending on how wealthy they were as a city-state. And uh, individuals from those city-states were also had different rates. So if you were an individual from Athens, which was considered to be a very rich city, you had to pay more. And if you came as a, an individual from Athens, you had one rate. And if you came on behalf of the city of Athens asking a kind of community question, there was a different rate. And we know that those prices changed over time as well. So, you know, poor old Siphnos, riding high, very wealthy, gets slapped with a high, high fee consultation rate one year, then it's lost all its minds and it's backed into poverty again. And the uh, rate was reduced to reflect its newfound uh, impoverishment. How did this meeting, and we're all interested in knowing, how did this meeting look like between the priestess and the person or people asking the question? It's again, it's shrouded in mystery. We don't have a single ancient source that tells us completely across the entire thousand years that the Oracle was in operation at Delphi exactly how the consultation took place. It was completely mysterious. We know that people went inside the temple. 
But once they were inside the temple, some sources indicate maybe you were face to face with the Pythian priestess. Some sources indicate you were in a separate room and you sort of read your question and you just heard her voice. So we don't know for sure how it took place. Right. I think we should dispel this myth because um, you're going you're to laugh at me. I am going to bring up the 300. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah the completely drugged out oracle consultation that was yeah, is, is, going is, on in 300 is, is that because it, 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 it's a rumor i mean i'm assuming it's a rumor because it, it just goes everybody said that you know you walk in and then she's high on some sort of is it methane or whatever the drug is and then she kind of like babbles out sort of information how true is this yeah, well, the Romans, uh, the Roman sources actually are the ones responsible for this. They talk about a kind of possible inhalation of, of gases coming out through the floor and thus the kind of priestess being sort of effectively high. Um, and actually very recently, geologists sort, sort of proved that there are uh, gases like ethylene escaping very slowly from the ground at Delphi. And if you were in some kind of enclosed space like the inside of a temple, over time, potentially these could get to a high enough level to actually have a sort of hallucinogenic effect. But my problem with this is that, look, no one's going to flog 600 metres up above sea level and keep on doing it from all parts of the Mediterranean world for over a thousand years to ask a question of someone who's off their head. Um, you know, you're just not going to get a response that's of any real use to you. And what we know is that Delphi, the Delphi responses were seriously treated by people for a thousand years. Uh, that doesn't happen if the only thing that's going on is, is someone's uh, kind of inhaling something and then getting high. So there have to be other explanations. And partly, I think uh, we should see that as, as not including any kind of hallucinogenic drugs. And actually Delphi being a very, very well-informed kind of no in in the kind of inter, in the ancient world where lots of people were coming from all over the place so the people who lived there knew as a result lots of things and they could make pretty informed guesses about lots of stuff equally uh, the responses that came from the delphic oracle were often riddles um, so they weren't clear answers of yeah do x or do y uh, and so it left the consultants actually having to spend a lot of time thinking through those responses and making up their own decisions about uh, making up their own minds about what they were going to do and it also meant that the Delphic Oracle could, could never categorically be proved wrong. Um, you had to ask your question to the Oracle in the form of, uh, is it better for me that I do X or Y? Uh, and then you got your riddle-like answer. And occasionally people did come back and go, look, you told me to do X, or at least I interpreted you as telling me that I should do X, and X turned out to be disastrous. Um, and then all the Delphic authorities had to say was, well, yeah, but you, you've no idea how bad Y would have been. Uh, it was impossible because of the sort of way that the consultation was set up uh, for uh, the Delphic Oracle to ever be categorically proved wrong. That's smart. That is really smart. So I guess the question would be, if you could ask the Oracle at Delphi something today, what would it be? Oh, no, that was my question. You're stealing my question. It's okay. Don't worry. Me? I don't know. Um... I have to phrase it in a certain way, don't I? So it'd be something along the lines of, um, if I stay in Poland, will it make me happy? I don't know, something along those lines. There we go. You sound like the sort of, that's exactly the sort of thing Cicero might have asked, or we know the ancient Greek writer Xenophon asked that kind of question as well. Absolutely brilliant. Go on, what would it be for you? 
Uh, I was thinking this morning, I was sitting this morning uh, having a look at the questions and I was out about in the park and I was sitting by a, a picnic bench and um, obviously some kids had been gathering there the night before and they left a whole load of rubbish uh, kind of around it rather than walking it to the to the bin not far down the road. And so I guess the question in my head at the time was, uh, what would we need to do to get people feeling more involved in and responsible for their communities? Because it feels to me at the moment that we're still lacking that a bit. Oh, I like that question. That's quite, that's interesting. So we've done the Oracle. We have done some beautiful treasuries. We've talked about the architecture. Let's talk just a little bit about war. I mean, how did Delphi fit into the war narrative? Well, in lots of ways. Uh, so, I mean, one, uh, it was the place where you commemorated uh, battles and successful battles from uh, all your wars. You know, you put up a treasury, you put up a statue group, you did whatever. Um, but we know also that wars were fought over Delphi in particular to maintain its sort of independent, uh, some might even go so far as to say pan-Hellenic nature. So there were three or indeed four sacred wars, they were called, fought over the um, ownership and future of Delphi. And we also know that Delphi played a great role in some of the key battles that defined the history of Greece, like the Persian Wars. So uh, the Athenians consulted the Oracle just before the Persians invaded. Uh, the gods themselves were supposed to have protected Delphi when the Persians sort of swept down through Greece. Um, so Delphi was at the centre of a war narrative uh, throughout ancient Greek history, whether it was because it was being consulted on, uh, being involved in, or being the place in which to commemorate uh, the wars after they'd happened. And how did it, how, well, how did Delphi impact the greater Mediterranean world? Uh, I mean, partly because from the period, I'd say from the 6th century through to the 4th century BCE, Delphi was being consulted on every single major question of cultural, religious, military, political importance by most of the major uh, leaders from around the Mediterranean world. Uh, and that included stretching into Asia Minor, what we know today as, as Turkey. Uh, so frankly, it was having a bearing on every major decision that was being made, and thus on the bearing of, of Greek history and of Mediterranean history as a whole. Uh, and I think kind of its wider appeal is really summed up in the story that I always find quite extraordinary, that when they were digging in the area of Greco-Bactria, which is actually modern day Afghanistan. They came across a settlement, uh, the remains of a settlement called Iconum, which was uh, in its heyday in the sort of third and second centuries BCE. And it was a Greekish community following the kind of invasions of Alexander the Great at the end of the fourth century. Uh, but here in Iconum, in the archaeological excavations, they found a statue uh, base that was inscribed with uh, a text. And that text told us that uh, someone had travelled from Iconum all the way to Delphi to gather the wisdom uh, that was inscribed on the temple at Delphi from the great sages, the great kind of philosophers and thinkers of the ages, and then travel back all the way to Iconum in, in, in Afghanistan, in ancient Greco-Bactria, to inscribe some of those sayings up in the city, so that even this, this small community sitting in the middle of Greco-Bactria in modern-day Afghanistan could benefit from the wisdom of the Delphic Oracle. Uh, and I think that kind of story tells you just how wide the reach of Delphi really was. I love it. I, I really love the story of Delphi and how it just included everybody from the Greek, well, and Roman world, really. But I have a question from Linda. 
You knew there was going to uh-huh. be one. You knew there was going at least going to be one. Or apart from the Panhellenic one, there's going to be one. Um, she said that she watched a previous interview of yours. So I don't know how much of the interviews she watches. So that's a whole different other matter. Um, but she wants to know if, given the chance, you would change. You said previously that you would change the name of your book Delphi. What would you change it to? Ah, uh, so it wasn't the main title. Definitely, I'd still call it Delphi because it's definitely about Delphi. It'd be a bit rude to call it anything else. Um, but it was the subtitle, and I called it "Center of the Ancient World." And you know, in the past couple of years, uh, and since then, I've written a book called "Ancient Worlds," um, in which I've tried to make the point that you know. Greek and Roman history is absolutely amazing, obviously, fab stuff. Mediterranean history is amazing and fab, but we too often think about it as if the Greeks and Romans and other communities around the Mediterranean were sitting in isolation and cut off from all the other amazing ancient communities that existed at the same time, whether that be the Parthians, the Sathanids, the Kushans, or the many different kind of kingdoms and empires of India, going all the way east to China, um, that were, in, in fact, in reality, actually totally interconnected with one another through the ancient silk roads for one thing the trading networks that that could, that went all the way from china to the roman empire and the mediterranean and as a result i kind of i think we 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 sort of let ourselves into a bit of a lie when we call a place like delphi center of the ancient world it was center of the ancient mediterranean world it was center of the ancient greek world but actually the ancient world is a much much bigger thing and i think we need to keep remembering that so if i was to update the title i'd call it center of the ancient mediterranean world um just to reflect the fact that we need to remember that the mediterranean was just one part of a very very big ancient world or indeed as i was put it in my book that i then went on to write in 2016 a whole series of ancient worlds linda i hope you're happy with that answer amazing thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about delphi about the oracle dispelling some myths talking about the votives and, of course, the beautiful architecture of Delphi. Um, Quickly, before we go, could you tell our listeners how they can get hold of your books? Yeah, absolutely. So do have a look uh, on my website, which is michaelscottweb.com or follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Prof Michael Scott. Uh, and uh, we, you can find all the links there you need. We look forward to uh, hearing from you with any questions or thoughts. You can get in touch with me via Twitter, Instagram or over email and also join in the live Q&As that I do on Facebook every couple of weeks uh, where you can ask any questions you like. And that includes you, Linda. You can come back with more questions. No worries. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us tomorrow because Claude Birabi, who is the director of the American Naval Museum at Annapolis, is going to be talking to us all about an early American naval hero. We bang on quite a lot about Nelson on this show and his ilk, but we're going to be talking with him about Captain Charles Stewart and with particular reference to the War of 1812. So don't miss that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.